big beat manifesto goes, big beats are the best, get high all the time. Right. At the time, it felt like a much more all-encompassing philosophy. I thought you were a business brain, Mark, but you're better than that. You're what my grandma would call a real piece of shit. Yeah? It's a great plan. Hans is the star, Jeremy's the second stringer. Let's fuck him. That's our dick. That's Jeremy's asshole. We're fucking him. Hello, welcome to the LD Brothers. Sorry. <laughs> I've never done the introduction before. It's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> hello, welcome to the LD Brothers podcast, episode number 30. Today, this is our special on How Not to Be a Boy, the memoir by Robert Webb. I'm Laura. Hi, Jean. I'm doing good. How are you? Yeah, not too I'm bad, thank you. I'm glad you have your voice finally. I yes, missed recording I last weekend. Yes, so did I. I have got a voice now. Um, in between this and teaching, it was not a good uh, thing to have no voice last week. It was shit, but I'm back on form now. Oh, that's good. I Like I said, it was definitely weird not having an episode to record last week, and I was just kind of sitting there on Saturday, and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't have anything to do. But yet what somehow... Yes, but yet somehow, even with all that free time, I still just barely finished the notes for burgling like 30 seconds before we started recording. So that Always just goes to way. show you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just goes to show you what a fantastic uh, use of time I put with that <laughs> extra week. Uh, well, I'm very excited to talk about this book. I've been rereading it this week and I've got post its in the book, many post its. So I'm looking forward to having a chat Yeah. Yeah, so I guess let's kind of just jump into this book, and then we'll just kind of go from there, okay? Okay. Um, so this book basically is Robert Webb's autobiography, and, you know, Robert Webb obviously plays Jeremy and Peep Show, um, and it's kind of framed with his experiences on the rules of being a man, which he says is don't cry, love sports, play rough, drink beer, and definitely don't talk about feelings. Um, it's the inside cover of the book says it describes it as him looking back over his life from schoolboy crushes on girls and boys to discovering the power of making people laugh and from losing his beloved mother to becoming a husband and father Robert Webb considers the absurd expectations boys and men have thrust upon them at every stage in their lives yeah I really love this book it was fantastic it's the first biography I think I probably have read ever um that wasn't required in school and this right. was a fantastic book yeah i agree with you um i absolutely loved it and i thought it was i've read a lot of memoirs um and i thought it was one of the best i've read and i thought it was very clever the way that he managed to hang his whole life on this skeleton of gender and gender expectations on men was no mean feat it's more than just your average celebrity memoir uh, not having anything to compare it to, I can probably agree with you that that is an accurate statement. Yeah, so uh, I've read, I've also read, um, like I say, I've read a lot of biographies, but I've also read uh, David Mitchell's biography, which seems like a obvious kind of companion to this because they're obviously a comedy duo. But that, whilst that's a great book and a great book in itself, it's quite in a different, I would say this is in a different league. This tries to do something quite different to your average kind of memoir. Yeah, one thing I thought was interesting, because the entire time that I was reading the book, especially when I, I got to the college section, was I was like, okay, you know, so all this stuff is happening in college, but 
When is he going to meet David Mitchell? When is he going to meet David Mitchell? And it was interesting when he was talking about how the first time he met David and he saw him as a real threat, um, you know, the footlights had kind of taken, had told uh, Robert that, you know, they don't really take freshmen on. And so, you know, he was a little disappointed when he didn't make footlights his freshman year, but then, you know, he got it, got into the footlights later, but then the footlights just kind of fell in love with David. And then Robert felt like really threatened by that. I thought that part was interesting because I wouldn't, I would have never have taken, um, you know, Robert Webb as kind of that, like the kind of person who would be threatened by the existence of another person. Yeah, I agree with you. I thought that was interesting. And it was interesting to kind of find out the dynamics of how they met. So um, for anyone that's not read the book, I suggest that you definitely go and read it. But um, he explains a little bit about how he ended up in, even though him and David Mitchell were the same age, Robert Webb ended up in the year below uh, David Mitchell at university because he was help. He had to redo his A levels. Was like because his mum died, and it was you know obviously he didn't perform as well as he would have done in his A levels if, if his mum hadn't passed away. So he ended up being in the year below. And like you say, uh, Footlights seemed to love David Mitchell. He was their darling. He ended up being the, um, oh, I can't even remember what the, I was going to say the head of Footlights, but that doesn't seem <laughs> seem to be the right expression. Yeah, it's, um, oh man, I think it's like the, I think it's the president, right? President. Yeah, I think he is the president of Footlights, yeah. And so David Mitchell was quite the, the golden child, I think, over there. Yeah, and... um. Yeah, I just felt that it just I just thought that it was so interesting the way that he took, you know, he that he was just so threatened by David Mitchell, but he had no reason to be threatened by David Mitchell. And then, you know, eventually and obviously we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but I figured that the David Mitchell stuff was really interesting. Mm. Um, You know, eventually they kind of decide to hit it off and they realize that they're a good comedy duo together. And then they just kind of both knuckle down and decide to just you know go at it together yeah i mean that definitely talking about how that you said that finding this out about robert webb that he was um threatened by david mitchell sort of you were surprised by that and everything else in this book has your opinion of robert webb changed since reading this memoir and finding out more about him um my opinion of webb like really had changed a lot where I always kind of saw him. I, sorry, let me start over again. Um, my opinion of Webb changed a lot. Um, much like I've always seen David Mitchell kind of as Mark in, you know, his political beliefs, which I've come to also find out are vastly different. Um, but I always kind of saw Robert as Jeremy, kind of the work shy drug using womanizing freeloader. And, while there is some of that in his personal life, you know, the struggles, you know, not that he necessarily had struggles with addiction, but I think as you kind of pointed out, um, or act, I guess not even as you pointed out, as he points out, while he was never an alcoholic, he did kind of feel a slight dependency to drink. Yeah. Um, but I, the part that really made me laugh um, was when he was talking about uh, when he was calling himself a cunt about his performance of a play called Dick Whittington, where a lot of his lines were cut out, but he still said them and then feigned, feigned outraged at the director uh, when the director was like, no, Robert, those lines were cut. Um, I was also really impressed with his work ethic and how hard he worked to get where he was today, and he really didn't take shortcuts. And 
even in school where he didn't really necessarily excel, he still worked pretty goddamn hard. Um, and, you know, I thought that was amazing how just kind of laser focused he was on a career path. And even though it didn't quite go the way that he had intended, you know, it's still, uh, it's still, um, you know, he still ended up achieving everything he wanted to achieve in since yeah. he was like 12. I, I agree with you. I was, I didn't really thinking about it. Had I had very little opinion on Robert Webb or David Mitchell outside of the idea that they were just funny guys and I enjoyed them together. What really stood out for me was that he had a completely different background from what I imagined he must have had. I, to be honest, without ever having looked into it and completely um, just sort of stereotyping both of them, I thought they were very much out of the kind of Fry and Laurie mode, that they were both from fairly privileged backgrounds. And whilst that is the case for David Mitchell, I think it's far less so for Robert Webb, who grew up in quite a working class situation, um, was from an area in the Midlands and openly talks about how he changed his accent for it to be more London-centric so that he he says he based his accent on Stephen Fry. Um, and he, um, I was very surprised by that. I didn't, I, I, I hadn't even considered for a second that he wasn't posh, publicly educated and generally a bit of a toff. So that was surprising for me. I also didn't realise he had a sister who was like 13 years younger than he is. Yes, yeah. He's got two brothers, hasn't he, from his mum and dad's marriage. And then he's got a younger sister from his mum's second marriage who is, yeah, considerably younger than him she is a little bit younger than me yeah yeah um so i guess probably we should kind of just talk through um the book chron chronologically just to kind of give an overview um so that people know what we're talking about and then yeah. um, we can dive into some of the deeper stuff that we wanted to um so basically <clears throat> excuse me he was born in a small village called Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire is a county, so he was born in a town in the county of Lincolnshire. Oh, okay. Um, shows how well my geography is. <laughs> um, his dad is named Paul, and I apologize, uh, what was his mother's name? I can't remember off the top of my head. Hang on. Uh, he just calls her mum, and he just talks yeah. about her. Um. But basically, his dad was just kind of, um, his dad was one of those men's men, you know, that, um, you know, boys don't cry, you know, and uh, whenever Robert would show any sort of emotions or anything, you know, his dad would say, you know, boys don't do that, boys don't do that. And over time, throughout his life, it started to really negatively impact him because as an adult, he didn't know how to you know, handle these emotions in a healthy way. Um, when he was younger, his mom and finally ended up divorcing his dad and she got remarried to a, a guy named Derek. And I feel like Derek was a little more, um, was a little, you know, more um, like, oh, it's okay to be a little emotional, but still Derek kind of reminded me of bob from stranger things <laughs> yeah i can see that he's a softer derek's a softer character but um but he is a product of his surroundings isn't he so whilst he's a softer character than than webb's dad he's that's not saying much because his dad is hard as nails and completely 
uninterested in discussing emotions and Derek's not much better he's just a bit better yeah um Derek was an was an interesting guy um mostly because he was a bit of a man-child too and um he kind of relied on Robert's mom for everything as well um and I don't even think he really knew how to take care of himself either and um you know it, it also kind of seems like that Derek was maybe a product of another uh, of a man who was like oh don't show those emotions because they're not good yeah there's a great bit in the book where um uh, so Robert Webb's mum dies as I mentioned and there's no sort of secret made of this it's it's on the front cover of the book so you're not there's no no spoilers to say that his mum uh dies she dies from cancer quite swiftly she's diagnosed and dies within a short time frame and Derek as you say seems comes across as a bit of a man child there's a, a sort of vignette where um Robert Webb comes down into the kitchen and his dad's round with Derek and they're sort of discussing what Derek's going to do now how he's going to deal with oh. uh, the baby who is Robert Webb's sister and all they can talk about is that there'll be no one to do the housework and Robert Webb's dad says to Derek that he's got a cleaner who's really good and she only charges like a five an hour so he'll pass on the details and that's that kind of I think shows you everything Derek is in that moment because he's not like weeping and wailing about his wife dying but thinking about the practicalities of how he's going to get on running the home with children in it when there's no one to do the women's work yeah I I remember that I, I enjoyed that scene as well but I really didn't take it as he was upset about having to do the housework I was taking that more as like holy shit I've never done housework before yeah no I don't think it was that he felt upset that he had to do it or affronted that he had to do it but it was simply that he had no idea of how he was gonna run a household without Webb's mum who clearly was the she clearly took took everything in hand and sorted everything out one thing that I really enjoyed is during his later teen, teenage years, um, kind of right around the time that his mom, like right, kind of right before his mom got sick and died, he started keeping a diary and he has these wonderful scenes in, in this book where he, you know, bravely, I would say, you know, posts parts of his diary and he has this, um, you know, he talks about in his diary... You know, it's just it just says April twenty fourth, mum dies at two forty five p.m. I love you. Sometimes it snows in April, and it just you know, like the fact that he was willing to, um, you know, post parts of his diary. I just thought was incredibly strong of him. And I thought it was know. very brave. I mean, there are some really um, sad bits of his diary, but there are also some really like terrible, cringy bits. And I were you a diary keeper as a teenager? Nope. Well, I was an avid diary keeper, and I tell you now, nothing would induce me to share bits of those diaries with anyone. Like, they were cringe-makingly terrible, and he doesn't shy away from showing you that cringe-makingly terrible side of himself as a teenager. And I agree with you. I thought that was really brave. It's more than I could do. No one's getting their hands on those. One other little part that really made me laugh was, um, so there was a girl named Marina that... Robert was in love with but she wasn't really I, I can't remember did they date or was she not really interested in I don't him? think she was really interested in him yeah so he writes her this letter and it's so funny because he's providing commentary 
um, on his diet. Like, so older Robert Webb is providing running commentary on, you know, uh, 13-year-old Robert Webb's uh, diary. It's so goddamn funny. Like, um, he's, he's like, uh, phew, yes, let's not write the letter. Luis had been a girl in the year above who actually just let me feel her breast before suggesting that we might just be friends. I wrote her a letter detailing how offensive this was to her. She never spoke to me again. So good thing we won't write the letter to Marina, but not so fast. And then he talks about how he ends up writing this letter. And of course, older Robert Webb is like, dude, we have a saying in the 21st century. She's just not into you. You're out of your mind. You must not write that letter. And then on a diary entry dated March 4th, 1990, it just says, well, I sent the letter. It wasn't half as bad as it could have been. And then older Robert Webb just responds, you idiot. And that part really fucking cracked me up. Have you ever done anything like that? Did you ever write a letter or some ill-advised communications with someone who just wasn't that into you? Um, not somebody who wasn't that into me, but I had a long-distance girlfriend and... After we broke up, I took it really hard and I would email her stuff and then just, you know, she would text me and be like, well, what the fuck is this email about? And I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I've, I've also been that guy. So I've, I've been that guy both ways around. So I had a boyfriend who I just wasn't letting him to write me a heartfelt letter that I was like, oh, I'm not interested in it. And it felt really bad to read that letter. But I've also been the person, mine was also via email sending the emails and that that doesn't feel so good either so neither way is good to be the person with those letters (laughs) i really enjoyed as well in the same sort of area of the book um web talks about how um he's his behavior is not very good towards his 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 girlfriends as a teenager and he says that you can get away with some amazingly bad behavior it turns out as long as your predecessors were complete shits and no matter how bad the poetry is, she now has a boyfriend who writes her love poems and becomes silly when drunk instead of physically threatening. The bar on teenage boyfriends is so astoundingly low that she puts up with my version of boyfriend bullshit for six months. And I thought that was really interesting. I thought that it was a really interesting idea that for a lot of teenage girls, there is this sort of idea that if your boyfriend's not really unpleasant, that's the best you can hope for. And that that's got a lot to do with masculinity and, and the way we accept certain facets of masculinity in our society. And I thought that was a very astute idea that you put forward there. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, yeah, the my long distance girlfriend, I probably wasn't the best to her, but her boyfriend before her was like a real piece of shit. Um, I Well, I shouldn't say that because I don't know if he listens to the show or not, but... <laughs> Um, her boyfriend before her was just, he was not the nicest of guy. Uh, he, uh, he, it wasn't that he wasn't a nice guy. It was just that he was very lazy and he wasn't, um, he like kind of freeloaded off her kind of like in a Jez Mark kind of way. Right. Yeah. Um, and so then when she had, when she met somebody who actually had made his own money and didn't really, you know, rely on her to pay for everything it was kind of like oh this is nice yeah i definitely have been in that position where so i had a boyfriend who was you know perfectly nice guy nothing wrong with him which me and him shouldn't have been together but he used to get away with a lot of stuff under the banner of well at least i'm not old what's his jobs and 
he, you know, he would he would say that himself, and it was like, yeah, but just because you're not the worst you could be doesn't mean that it's not quite bad. Yeah. Um, what what other stuff from his childhood kind of stuck out to you? I I really enjoyed the part where he was talking about how he had the little crush on his friend Will, but that he didn't really understand why he had a crush on Will. Yes, and I I thought it was very brave. I was talking about brave, his bravery and you know showing us bits of his diaries. I thought it was very brave to talk so candidly about his. I don't want to say gayness or homosexuality because he clearly is bisexual or has been bisexual but I think for a man who sort of openly is publicly straight and that everyone knows him as being straight he's married to a woman very brave to talk about relationships and sexual relationships and sexual urges he had towards other men um because it's still something that's a bit of a taboo in our society to be a a seemingly straight man who's had a, a past that involves homosexual relationships one part that I thought was really funny was, um, so, uh, to keep, sorry, and I'll, I'll circle back around this. So basically, after Robert's mom dies, he struggles for a little bit. He ends up going to school, um, joins Footlights, meets David Mitchell, kind of struggles for a little bit after um, school, moves back in with his dad, and then kind of Peep Show takes off after that. And then, or well, Bruisers, I guess, and then Peep Show kind of catapult them into... Um, you know, a fair amount of celebrity, but there's this really funny part where he's moved back in with his dad after college and his dad who has kind of, who kind of morphs as a character after his mom dies into a much more sensitive person. I don't know. Did you feel that same way about his dad? Yeah. I felt that his dad was, his, his, the way he talks about his dad is really interesting because he obviously was no great fan of his dad. His dad was obviously not a great guy. He particularly wasn't very nice to his mum. but I agree with you that, that I feel like Webb has made his peace with who his dad was because he does manage to talk about him with some fondness. And, and I agree with you that after his mum dies, he becomes a kind of softer person in the book. But yeah, so, uh, which was awesome, which it was great to see that kind of, you know, a person really could realize their faults and change. But, um, you know, 20 something Robert is sitting with his dad having dinner and his dad is talking about how, you know, oh, if you or... Uh, what are his brothers' names? Andrew and Derek. Um, Andrew and Paul was Andrew and Paul. Uh, no, See? Paul was his dad. I thought his his brother was named after his dad. Derek's his stepdad, so it's not Derek. Oh yeah. Uh, Mark. Oh, Mark and Andrew. Right, that's right. Yeah. So his dad is is talking to Robert, and they're at the dinner table, and his dad goes, "You know if." you or mark or andrew were ever to have a gay thing you know i wouldn't i wouldn't disown you if you or (laughs) mark or andrew you know ever wanted to talk about it you know i'm here and you know if you or mark in but and he's really leaning on this fact that he thinks his son is gay and um robert kind of tells him like well you know I experimented and his dad is just like claps his hands. He's all excited. He's like, I knew it. I knew it. And, you know, so it was kind of cool because you wouldn't really think the way he describes his dad early in the book that he would be accepting of a, you know, of a son who had experimented with other guys. And, you know, I just thought his dad turns out to be like a very surprising and very good character throughout the book. His dad is wonderful. It made me really appreciate my dad a bunch. And certainly I think that, 
right at the start of the book he talks about how um when he did let's dance for comic relief how much his dad's um approval meant to him so i do think that for all the fact that his dad was clearly hard work and clearly was quite unkind to his mum um he like you say does turn out to be maybe a nicer guy than we initially think he's going to be Hmm. um so let's go through some of the questions that you had because i think that some of the questions that you had um were really interesting so what was your personal response to this book I found it really interesting in that I found it interesting as a story. I think that it was, it's unimaginably sad where it starts from. So um, Webb is born, he's the youngest son of the family and he's born 10 months after his next, the next brother up dies from meningitis. So he's already born into this kind of tragic situation and his parents have clearly got a bad marriage that's not been made better by the fact that they've had a child die. And there's a lot of trials and tribulations in this family. And then when you think it can't get any more unpleasant, the mum dies. And that in itself would be an interesting story to tell. He's in the public eye. It's a, it's a mix of kind of normal family situations that we all know, but this kind of Shakespearean tragedy in the middle of it. So I thought that that was an interesting story. But, oh, hang on. Speaking of sad stories. <laughs> yeah, but that it was an interesting story. But but not only does he tell us this interesting story, but he then hangs it on this skeleton of gender identity and what it means to be a man. And I was really taken with, and really surprised that I'd never put two and two together before, of the idea that met so many men, Robert Webb puts forward the idea that so many men are angry because they're sad. And actually, anger is a male response to sadness and I'd never thought of that before despite the fact that I grew up with a very angry father um my dad would not mind me saying that he his temper is legendary he's much better than he was as a younger man he's had a lot of therapy he had a horrible childhood himself but he was a very angry man and I then went on as a teenager to fall in love with a very angry man who had a very similar family background and yet I'd never put the two things together that these men were angry because they were sad and it really it hit me like a thunderbolt I thought that was so interesting and true and and not even just a theory like completely gospel truth I was like oh yeah that's that completely makes sense so I was very grateful to Robert Webb for shining some light on that side of masculinity for me yeah and you have two kind of questions and I'm gonna I kind of want to just take care of both of them at the same time um but I agree with this idea a lot that, you know, that as a guy that sometimes I'm not able to process my emotions. So instead it just turns to anger. Um, As I stated earlier, I had a long distance girlfriend and when we broke up, instead of handling it, you know, properly, I lashed out at her and sent her horrible emails and stuff like that. And she realized that I wasn't lashing out at, you know, that I was just lashing out and that, you know, it wasn't personal. And after a few years, we managed to rekindle a friendship. Um, you know, even still, I mean, there's a couple times where, you know, I, I love my wife, but even I've lashed out at my wife a couple times and, you know, you just end up feeling horrible after it happens. Cause you're like, why the fuck did I just yell at her? Like, why am I upset? Like, there's no reason I should be upset. I was just embarrassed about something like, you know, calm, calm yourself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, um, was, I just can't believe I've got to 
well, I was almost 32 when I read this book and it hadn't, and yet, and I had had so much experience with angry men and yet had not made that connection before. Um, and I, and I think if I hadn't made that connection, I can't be the only one who's not made that connection. So I actually think this is a really important, um, important book because it, it's putting this idea around in, a, in an accessible way. You might not have read the book expecting to find that, but you've suddenly got a much better outlook on, on the men in your life or yourself as a man, if you are a man. Yeah. Um, one other thing that, that, that really spoke to me about the men are angry, um, kind of theory that Robert Webb puts forth in this book is I just think about my, you know, my cousin that tragically died when, you know, um, like, 17 18 almost 18 years ago um you know he was he was depressed he had uh been injured and he wasn't able to be a roofer anymore and that was all he really ever wanted to do is just be a roofer and he owned a roofing company and just through an injury he wasn't you know able to do that anymore and instead of you know kind of processing that and you know thinking like okay well I can't do this you know now what can I do um instead he just kind of got more and more depressed as time went on you know thinking about like what a failure he is what a failure he is and ultimately ended up um leading to him killing himself and you know his dad um when I was like 10 his dad my uncle um, I was going around giving everybody hugs. I was getting ready to go to sleep or something like that. And all the family, we were up at my grandma's and all the family was there. And, um, you know, I went to go give my uncle a hug and he just stuck his hand out and he goes, you know, I was like confused. Like, why am I shaking your hand? Like, you're my uncle. I should give you a hug, you know? Mm. And he just looked at me and he said something along the lines of like, men don't hug men. And, you know, shook my hand instead. And, at my cousin's funeral, I remember just seeing his dad like crying and just totally grief stricken over the death of his son. And it was just so, it was just kind of jarring to me because I'd never seen his dad express emotion like that mm. before. Do you think for your cousin and, and therefore, you know, probably the case for his dad as well, that do you think that your cousin had the capability to work through the, those emotions or do you think that the the very fact that he couldn't was because he was unequipped to do so and do you think that that was the case for your uncle as well and maybe it just had gone back in the generations of just these men that are ill-equipped to deal with emotions um i don't want to lay it all on on that um there's a lot of like alcohol and probably some drug usage going on too that that I think had he not been messed up when everything happened that he probably would have realized like, let me just go to sleep tonight and you know, tomorrow will be a new yeah. day. Um, so I think it was, I think it was just partly because he didn't really know how to handle it. Um, especially just do, I mean, he was in basically was in like sort of a car accident and it just really like did a lot of damage to like his hips and legs and everything. And, um, so I think he felt like he was a burden on his family. I think he felt like he was a little bit of a burden on his business partner and he didn't really know, you know, just what to do. And, mm. um, he didn't really have, he was living by himself a couple hours away from his family and he really didn't have many people to talk to in his life. And I always kind of regret not being there more for him, but, um, 
I mean... You surely must have been very young yourself, though. Uh, I was 20... Man. Yeah, I guess I was 20 when he passed, and my cousin was 23 or 24, mm. somewhere around there. You probably weren't. You probably weren't, you know, yeah. completely yeah. equipped yourself to deal yeah. with that, what no, 20-year-old no. is. You know, it's not... And I think that for, for Robert Webb, this is... I think this is one good thing that comes... Well, there's lots of good things that come out of this book from him on a personal level. The way he talks about his dad is I think he, he has made his peace with the fact that he couldn't process... His dad couldn't process his emotions. He couldn't process this grief he has for his son that died. He couldn't process the grief he then had for his ex-wife that died. But he did not have the equipment to do so. And I feel like... Robert Webb has made his peace with this and the way he's made his peace by it with it is by thinking that the only way he can solve it is by becoming better equipped to deal with his emotions himself and I think that that might be potentially that perhaps this book came from some sort of therapy exercise I thought that as I was reading it the first time which was that maybe to put put right the wrongs of the past he's decided that he's got to 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 be a better man to be better at dealing with his emotions and, and dealing with his feelings for the sake of those men that came before him that couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, one interesting line that I saw that I was looking for and I, I thought I had written down but don't really remember is uh, he was talking about when his dad was at uh, his college graduation from Cambridge and he said his dad's eyes were quite red but he hadn't had a single drink that day. And I just was like, oh, his dad was, you know, so happy he was crying that, you know, his son had graduated college. And yeah, I just yeah. I thought that part was awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the I other. Think... Sorry, going, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say the other part, you know, that I wanted to kind of piggyback off of what we were just talking about was you had a question that said, what are our own experiences with masculinity? Interesting moment in the book is when Webb discusses how feelings and emotions are handled by men who fought in wars and the sons of those men. Um, is that something that I identify with? And that's something that, you know, I saw a ton in the, in the military was just, you know, when I joined, I joined pre nine 11 pre Iraq war. So, you know, a lot of us were just kind of like, Oh, ha, you know, Oh, this is cool. Like, Oh, we're going to have this good job. And, you know, there's no wars right now and oh this is awesome and then all of a sudden you know we turn it turns into a cycle of endless war and mm. um one of my really good friends who is special forces you know i remember when i saw him you know coming back from his first deployment and as you know military member to military member you know my you know i'm trying to think of like well what kind of question can i ask him and then i you know i asked him like oh, you know, how many confirmed kills did you get while you were over there? Because, you know, we're warriors and that's what warriors talk about. And he just said, you know, I don't really want to think about it. And then he really, you know, like instantly changed the conversation to like, oh, so what video games have you been, you know, um, what video games have you been playing? And I think in the military, a lot of us tend to compartmentalize our emotions um, yeah. because you kind of have to, to survive, especially when you're, you know, special forces or infantry or, you know, frontline, like you have to be able to push down like your fear and, you know, your, you focus. And um, fortunately for a lot of those people, they compartmentalize, but then it never, you know, they never deal with, you know, those compartments and, um, you know, over since pretty much since the Iraq war has started, there's been 
record high suicides among the veteran population. And a lot of it is just because they don't really know how to handle these emotions. Um, I watched the, the uh, Netflix Punisher last weekend and there's a character named Lewis on there. And Lewis is a very realistic look at veterans who have PTSD and who were told to sack up and then weren't really given the proper, you know, help they needed to live successful lives outside of the military. Oh, I have, I have to check that out. I was I was very interested in your take on this because um, Webb says that the bit in the book, he says that for men of about his age and older, those whose fathers had fought in a war or who were raised by the sons of such fathers, there can be few more powerful accusations than the one of self-indulgence. This is the voice I hear all the time, be a man, man up, act like a man. And I was I was interested to hear what you thought about it having been in the military simply because for me, I'm too far out of the loop now, like, I don't know anyone. I've never known anyone personally who fought in a war. My grandfather's one I didn't know, and he was too young anyway. And the other one was was too young to have been in a war and didn't even do national service because he had tuberculosis. So I'm far from any any man. I've never known a man who, who fought in a war or was in the army. Um, so I thought that that was a very interesting observation on Webb's part, but one that I couldn't completely identify with, but that I know for my dad and for my grandfathers would have been a consideration because they both had parents who'd been in the war. Yeah. Um, one other question I was going to ask you too is, um, you know, one thing that I like nowadays uh, when we're talking about, you know, the gender issues and everything that are addressed in this book is, um, you know, how do you like your daughters you know like you have a daughter who i think is as old as my oldest niece like one of your daughters is like almost five right um she's three and a half. Oh, three and a half. Yeah, okay yeah, yeah so she's a little younger than my niece yeah. but one thing that's been really funny watching my niece is um you know i remember telling my wife like after niece number five, I told my wife, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm like, I wish we, somebody would have a boy so that, you know, I could go do boy things with, with my niece or my, my nephew rather. And my wife was like, well, what's to stop you from, you know, doing boy things. And she kind of, you know, elbowed me in the side with, with your niece. And I was just like, oh, I don't know what, you know, I don't know if she wants to. And then um, for Christmas last year, she got a train set which I would kind of consider like a quote boys toy. Mm. And she was playing with her train set while wearing her bell dress. And then she was telling me how excited she was to start playing volleyball. So it was kind of a, it was kind of an eye opening look at gender through my niece who was doing, you know, decidedly like boy things like playing sports and playing with trains, but was also in her pretty princess dress. Yeah. I do think that, from as the mother of daughters that there is there's sort of these two camps now I feel like there are there's the obviously like the old school kind of like girls gonna do girls things kind of camp and then there's the camp where you're expected to almost make your daughter be like a son because in order to be right thinking and and a proper lefty liberal you know they should be playing with junior welding sets you know because <laughs> you know in their bell dresses like you say and for, certainly for my younger one, it's probably too early to tell. But for my older one, she's a complete girly girl. She doesn't even, she won't even wear leggings because she says girls don't wear trousers. And that's not anything that I've, that me or her father have put on her. That's definitely, that's coming from the outside. That has happened since she's been at preschool. 
and it does scare you. It does scare you to think, oh my God, these, these stereotypes are happening so young that these girls and boys are, are feeling separate and that no wonder boys feel like they can't display their emotions and girls feel like that they have to be pretty and it's all about window dressing for them. But I don't know, the problem is bigger than me and it's bigger than you. It's a, a societal issue and we do need more people like Robert Webb talking about these things in an accessible way so that, you know, I don't I don't want my daughter to not, not be able to express herself as a girl, but I don't want her to, someone's put that in her head that boys, like, like girls don't wear trousers, you know, that's come from elsewhere and that is worrying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's crazy, you know, that yeah. at three and a half she's already like, well, girls do this and boys don't boys do yeah. this and girls and do that's, this that's a three and a half with a year's worth of preschool under a belt like and it happened almost immediately so from you know she didn't really seem to have any concept of gender and then she'd been there for a few weeks and suddenly oh girls play with that and boys play with this and girls wear this and girls wear that and boys don't and it's terrifying because they're you you wouldn't be previous to having a child of that age and she at that point was like two years and three months I wouldn't have thought it would have been possible <laughs> for her to pick <laughs> up gender th expectations like that. But clearly it is because she did. I'll have to ask my sister if my niece has had any similar conversations with her. Because I'm sure that my sister is, you know, also, she's also a lefty liberal and, you know, is probably raising her daughter kind of the same way that you guys are. Where you're, you know, like, oh, do whatever you want and be whatever you want to be. Mm, yeah. The really yeah. funny, th really funny was last year for her birthday, uh, my sister had bought her like a Lego set or something like that. And uh, my niece and I were putting it together. And um, my niece was like, well, I want to be an engineer when I grow up. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And I'm like, you know, who else was, uh, who else do you know that's an engineer? Because both her mom and her dad are engineers. And she's like, oh, daddy's an engineer. And I'm like, who else is an engineer? She's like, daddy's brother, Ben is an engineer. And I'm like, yes, he is. Who else is an engineer? And she's like, uh, daddy's dad is an engineer. And I was trying to get her to say my sister, you know, to be like, hey, look, mm. women can do this too. And, um, you know, I kept like, who else is an engineer? <laughs> who else is an engineer? And she wasn't saying my sister. And finally, um, I said, you know, your mommy is an engineer too. And um, my niece was just like, she is? And she goes, no, Uncle Sean, she's a lawyer. And I'm like, no, she's a lawyer and an engineer. And my niece's like little four-year-old brain was just blown at the fact that a person could do two things. More or less a superhero doing yeah. those two jobs at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was kind of, you know, I thought that you, um, you had an interesting tweet from Robert Webb. Why don't you tell, tell me about that tweet a little bit? Uh, yeah, so I tweeted him to say how much I like the book. And he tweeted back to say that, Part of his motivation for writing the book was to stop his two daughters from ending up with nutters, quote unquote. Um, I've had my fair share of experiences with angry men, angry boyfriends. And I wonder, do you think, well, first of all, is it the same where you are in America? And is it inevitable in a society like ours that Webb's daughters are not going to be able to avoid nutters? Is there, do you think there's any hope for the next generation <laughs> or are we doomed to keep making these same mistakes? Um, no, I mean, I think there's hope. Um, one thing that I think is awesome is just kind of, 
that you know this focus on not making everything gendered um i don't know if it's the same way in england but i do you guys have targets like the store target in england no but i do know what they are and i think we've got similar outlets yeah okay. i know i know what target is yeah okay so target made huge waves earlier or late last or middle of last year when they basically got rid of the girls section and the boys section for toys and they just had a toy section so now you'll have like barbies next to teenage mutant ninja turtles next to legos next to you know gi joes etc um and you know a lot of people were like oh my god that's horrible like why are you doing that and target was just like if a if a boy wants to play with a Barbie doll, like why does it fucking matter? And so I'm hoping that, um, you know, if you'd asked me two years ago if society was changing, I would have emphatically said yes. But with the current political climate, I'm worried about a regression. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's um. So we've got you talking about Target. We've got kind of a similar campaign here in the UK called Pink Stinks. Um, and that it's a campaign that was set up by two mothers who were um, upset at the overtly gender stere- se- segregated and sexist products that they were sort of aimed at young children. So they decided to do something about it. Um, and this campaign, one of the women that set it up, Emma Moore, she said that Pink Sinks is a reaction to what we see around us. And I think for the people that object to this idea of taking away the gender segregation that the, the only reason they've got objections to start with are because someone decided to segregate the things in the first place so really it's a bit messed up isn't it that we ever had the idea that we should be segregating the thing so I I'm completely on board with this idea I don't understand why toys can't just be toys for children I'm, I'm most confused about that you know I took a um a human development class several years ago and our teacher was talking about how um, his grandson wanted a doll when he was like four or something like that. And everybody around him was like, you know, oh my God, like, are you going to buy your son a, a doll? And he was like, well, yeah, I'm going to buy my son a doll, you know, like, or my grandson, you know, he wants a doll. Like, let's get him a fucking doll. Like, how else is he supposed to learn how to take care of a baby? You know? Yeah, like, I, I'm completely with you. And I've got friends who have sons and and it's always the husbands it's always the husbands who object to them their sons having dolls and it makes no sense to me and and I hate the way it makes you second guess yourself because so I've got a friend who had a baby uh last week and I know her very very well but I don't know her partner very well and they've already got a son they had another son and I went to buy a present for the baby and I was buying a present for the younger son and I was going to buy him a doll because I thought, oh, that would be a nice thing to say, like, here's, you've got a little brother and you've got your own baby. And I had to stop myself because I thought, I don't know if his dad's going to object to this because I don't know him well enough to, I don't want it to look like some sort of political statement that I've, like, <laughs> come in with my guardian under my arm, giving him a, a little baby toy to play with. But how fucked up is it that we have to think like that? How fucked up is it that you're second guessing, you know, what what people are going to think and that people are going to think you're some sort of political warrior? Like... Why can't boys play with dolls? It's just mental. Yeah, it really is. And, um, you know, but I think this is awesome. Like the the conversation that we're having, you know, was all based off of this book written by a fucking actor that, you know, just brings up good 
really rational statements and yeah i mean it's it just goes i mean this book just incredible you know when you start to think about um you know stuff like this and yeah it's awesome uh cannot you know say enough how much i really enjoyed this book no now, it's absolutely my my book of the year it doesn't just deserve five stars it deserves 105 stars like it's it is one of the most illuminating interesting things i've read for a very long time one thing that made this book and it took me a little while to read and i'll be on, i'll be honest with you it took me a little while to read but i had a i had a really hard time kind of getting through the elementary and the younger um portions of the book where he was talking about as a young kid because that to me wasn't as compelling as like his later teen years and especially um with the death of his mom but i have a question for you and i'm sure if any american reader wants to um uh read this book i highly recommend it but can you please explain a levels and gcse and all that stuff because i was a little confused at you know uh that you know because in america we have elementary school middle school high school and then you go on to college and our colleges are a little more liberal with what they teach and so we don't have like specialized colleges um how does the system work over there so that american readers can understand all the stuff that happens in this book so here you go to school the year you turn the academic year you turn five and you stay there till you are 11 and then once you're 11 you go to secondary school and you stay there till you're 16 and the year that you turn the academic year you turn 16 you do your gcse's which are general certificates of secondary education and you normally do about 10 or 11 of those in different subjects and then depending on how well you do in those now this wasn't the case even five years ago and it certainly wasn't the case when Webb was at school or when I was at school now you have to stay in educational training until you're 18 and what that means is depending on how you did in your GCSEs you either do an apprenticeship or you might do a different sort of diploma in something or you might do A-levels back in the day when me and Robert were at school you could at 16 you could leave school if you wanted then and get a job um either way you go into sixth form way between the ages of 16 and 18 and you do a levels which stands for advanced levels and you do those in fewer subjects so uh most people did three or four i've got three a levels robert webb's got i think he's got two to get two no he must have got three to get into cambridge yeah he had three and depending on what marks you get in your A-levels depends on what university will have you. So you apply to university based on your predicted grades. And the more prestigious the university, the higher you need those grades to be. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So (laughs) uh, I'm embarrassed to say this. So it's exactly like the owl and newts from Harry Potter? I don't know Harry Potter that well. Oh, well, (laughs) I look like a giant idiot then. (laughs) But I'm going to say... She's English, so she probably based it on the British education system, would be my guess, yeah. All right, well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, one other part that I really want to talk about was I love the interaction with him and the recruiter from Cambridge when he was on his uh, the school field trip right after his mom died. Oh, yeah. I, thought, I thought that part was so touching and... Um, you know, yeah, it, it's he, interesting. He comes from he comes from his mum's funeral, doesn't he, to have the open day with the yeah. like the university fair, 
and he sits down to talk to the lady and she can't believe that he says like oh I've not done as well as I could have done this year and she says oh why is that expected him to say something like I've got a girlfriend or you know I'm just generally loving sit form life and not buckle down as hard as I could and he says oh my mum died like her funeral was this morning and she's gobsmacked that he's come from this funeral to go to the university fair mm-hmm yeah yeah and then she uh you know she like tells him you know she really gives him this boost of confidence to you know get in there um, and i mean god you know oxbridge is i don't know if it's if as an american you fully understand how intimidating the idea of oxbridge is to your average working class british school child but it's not something that everyone's got in them at all you know i certainly didn't think it was within my reach and i was probably right but i didn't I really admire how he had the determination and chutzpah, and like you said earlier, to just like was single-minded about where he wanted to be. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, he was just single-minded. He knew what he he wanted to join Footlights, so he, in order to do that, he had to go to Cambridge, and um, you know, it really kind of forced him to work harder than what he wanted to do. And um, there's a really great scene where. Um, and this one was in the Guardian article that where they did kind of the um, extracts from the book. Yeah, where they did the extracts of the book, um, which I think probably we should. I'll tweet out the link to that. We should tweet mm. out the link to that article when we tweet out this episode. But um, anyway, yeah, definitely. It but, was on. It was also Radio Four's book of the week, so we'll tweet that as well. Yeah. But there's this great part where he's sitting with his dad at the table and, you know, he's decided to tell his dad that he's struggling in school. And he's very worried about how his dad is going to kind of react to this. And, um, you know, he sits down and at this point, how long has it, has mom been died or has Jesus had his mom been dead? Was it like about a year or so? Yeah, like nine months to a year. Yeah. And so he sits down and he's talking to his dad at. And he's just like, you know, dad, I haven't been as honest with you as I could have. You know, I'm really struggling in school. I don't know why I'm struggling in school. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with this. And his dad just kind of looks at him and says, well, it's because your mom died. And <coughs> excuse me. And, you know, Robert says, well, you know, mom died, you know, last year. And his dad just says, you know, she might as well have died yesterday. And. I felt like that to me that that was the scene in the book where, you know, my opinion of his dad changed drastically. Yeah, it was a pivotal moment, definitely, for the sort of father-son relationship. And and it sort of flew in the face of what we thought we knew about his dad at this point, which was that he was like an insensitive oaf. And he completely, like you say, without even having to consider for a second why Wood was doing so poorly at school, knew it was because his mother died. Yeah. Um, let's see. So let, uh, what I'd like to hear about, and I know you've been dying to talk about it for like two months now. Um, I would really like to hear about the, um, the, uh, little live show that you went and saw Robert Webb speak at. Uh, yeah. So I went to the How To Academy in London, uh, in September to see him it was like a book reading and a kind of Q&A with Victoria Corrin Mitchell. He's obviously married to David Mitchell. Um, it was really, really interesting. <laughs> um, and, I didn't know um, that. 
Oh, did you not? Yeah, she's his wife. Um, she's a TV presenter over here. So, and I find she does a quiz show, and she's very, she's very, uh, like really glamorous and intimidatingly clever, and that came across on stage. Um, and he, at this point, the book was, um, it's been a massive bestseller. Uh, it was onto its fifth edition in like two weeks at this point, and now three months later, it's still in the top 50 like hard book hard hardback book chart in this country so it's been a massive smash and that was clear on the day from the audience like it was standing room only packed out loads of people adoring fans um and victoria Cora mitchell started off by asking him what his reasons were for writing the book and he said that he felt like his life had been a mixture of unusual and typical and that he had an interesting story to tell and that he as a teenager had been quite angry and angsty and as he'd got older he felt better equipped to address to his teenage self how he should have handled that and you know how to be a better man and that he kind of wanted to write it to tell the story and also wanted to write it a bit for his teenage self. Yeah, that was one thing that we didn't really mention is in the book, he periodically talks about how he wishes he could introduce his teenage self to his older self, um, especially when he was a younger guy. He talks about, you know, he was like a virgin until he was 17, and that was a real source of angst for him. And, um, you know, he... That really made me laugh because I went to sick form with... I went to a boys' school for sick form, so there were very few girls in the year. So I knew a lot of boys of like 16, 17, 18. And by Christ, they were all virgins at that age. Like, I don't know either his perception of what everyone else was doing was, was wrong or he went to a school where everyone was hyper-sexualised because all the teenage boys I knew were very definitely still virgins at 17. In my high school, I, in my graduating class, I would say it was probably about a 50-50 mix. Mm. Definitely, he seems to think everybody's doing it in a way that I don't think is the case. Yeah, and even his mom, like, when his mom is, like, on his deathbed, you know, he goes to talk to his mom, and his mom is just like, you know, is there anything, you know, is there anything I can do for you? And he just is like, oh, mom, I'm still a virgin. And his mom's just like, okay, not a big deal. Like, you know, don't put pressure on yourself to, to do it. Like, calm down, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's so funny as well that that was like the deathbed conversation that he had with his mum, and he ne and he never said he never says he regrets it, and and never said nor should he. But it's just so funny that at seventeen, that was his like top priority, almost like it was a dirty secret he had to tell his mum, and yeah. and you know it's so typical at that age <laughs> to be a virgin, and it's fine. Um, the another question that Victoria Cora Mitchell asked was that was he nervous about his personal story and, you know, his life being co-opted into sort of a gender-based discussion. Um, he took part in a highly publicised Channel 4 news interview and he said he was nervous about it for, for months before. Um, it had a massive reaction, <laughs> which made, he said, it made some angry men much angrier, but I felt I'd done my bit because at least they were channeling their emotions, which was very funny. Um, but... He said that from his point of view, he was obviously alone when he wrote the book um, and he felt like he put his feelings about 
gender identity forward very succinctly. But when you are actually talking on the news, <laughs> it's much harder to control your emotions and, and to come out with them as succinctly as that. So he was worried that he hadn't performed as well as he could have done in this interview, which I don't think was fair because I think he was he defended his position very well. But I can see that if you've taken ages over a book and you've taken a long time to, to come up with your ideas in a succinct and logical way, to have some bloke shouting at you on the news is not going to make you be able to, to do that on, on live on telly. Um, do you, are you aware of this interview? Like, what did he say in this interview that was so controversial? It wasn't really anything controversial. It was more the fact that some of the other people had been brought in because they had completely different ideas about gender identity. And I think that he just felt that he didn't, not even didn't, defend himself well enough but the book speaks for itself and the book defends itself but as soon as you're having to come out on the offensive in a news interview it looks like you've not got your story straight almost you've not got your ideas in order okay that makes sense okay mm. um but he did say that he felt that writing the book and organizing his thoughts about gender meant that he he was more articulate about gender in general and about subjects of gen the subject of gender in general and so the very act of writing the book had kind of given him a clearer viewpoint on it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely could see how writing a book with that kind of view uh, or with that kind of a goal in mind could, you know, um, you know, like, oh God, I can't even think of how to fucking say it. I'm sorry. It's all right. Uh, you, go ahead. It's fine. Okay. Um, there was an interesting area as well, and I wanted to ask you about this. He talked about, or Victoria Corrin uh, Mitchell asked about the speech he made at their wedding. He apparently said that his opening on the speech was that he had never seen David Mitchell's penis, which was kind of unusual <laughs> considering that they spent a lot of years together gigging, sharing hotel rooms, etc. And Victoria Corrin Mitchell asked the audience. Uh, which men had seen their platonic friends' penises, and lots of hands went up in the auditorium. And they were discussing how weird it was that men can't talk about their feelings, but they can look at each other's knobs. So I just wondered if this was something that you were familiar with, like the idea of boys together, new to TV and fine. <laughs> but that, yeah, talking about emotions is off limits, but you can look at each other's balls. I have never once looked at any of my friends' penises on purpose. Um when I was in the military, sometimes when you were, you know, when you would be in the communal shower, it might accidentally, you know, uh, be something you look at. But as far as like, hey, Steve, let me see your dick. Uh, <laughs> never, never that. Never happened. Okay. He, he did go on to say that as an actor, I have very low standards of personal modesty or I'm a massive nudist. So maybe this is a Robert Wood thing. Maybe it's an English thing. But yeah, I... Yeah, I, I'm the same. I'm not. I'm not getting naked in front of many of my mates. But it did seem to be in the auditorium that a lot of men had seen each other naked. So I was just interested to ask. And um, another thing he talked about was about comedy being sexist and how it's one of the most sexist industries outside of finance. And I thought this would be a good in to talk to you about whether or not you think Peep Show is sexist. Um, you know, that's that's kind of an interesting question because. I personally don't think that Peep Show is sexist, mostly because you are looking at everything through the perspective of Mark and Jeremy. So any sexism in the show, I feel, 
would just be sexism that was inherent to their characters. Mm. But, you know, when you look at some of the women in the show, especially like Dobby, Big Sue's, Nancy, they don't really need men in their lives to be complete. You know, Sophie feels like that she has to have a kid, so obviously she needs, you know, another person to do that. But, I mean, she might as well have just gotten a sperm donor, you know? Yeah. Like, she didn't yeah. necessarily need the man. What she wanted was the baby, and the man was just mm. kind of a means to an end. I I was interested to hear your opinion simply because I'm conflicted about this, and I'm not completely sure even of my own opinion on it. But Robert Webb said that Peep Show had been accused of not having strong female characters. And he said that he didn't think that mattered because they were flawed and ridiculous, just like the men. And it wasn't like, I don't know if you're familiar with Men Behaving Badly, I don't know if that was a thing over there. But it was a sitcom called Men Behaving Badly where the men were idiots who couldn't run their own lives. And their girlfriends were kind of mother figures who were, um, who were in charge of the men's lives and organised everything for them. And Robert Webb said that that's not the case in Peep Show, you know. The uh, women don't have to keep the men in check. He said that Sophie started off as a kind of Dorothy figure, who was one of the women in Men Behaving Badly, but by the end she's as flawed and mad as everyone else. And I do think that's a valid point, but as a woman, I am uncomfortable with the fact sometimes in Peep Show that the women are poorly drawn at best. Sometimes the women are so clearly written by men that I feel like they could have had a chat with a woman to just see how a woman might react or a woman might have responded to certain situations. And sometimes I think the women are quite two-dimensional. So I'm not completely sure that I agree that people show isn't sexist or isn't in some way confused well, about women. I mean, and I completely get what you're saying, but but the women are two-dimensional because you never see or, or see hear their thoughts because everything is from Jeremy and Mark's perspective. Like I guess that's true. And I guess the point of view aspect does kind of make it hard to completely understand where the women are coming from. And I get that, but I don't think to say outright completely it isn't sexist is true. Like what I'm really looking forward to doing is incorporating the bits of Sophie's peep show in season six, where we actually get some insight into Sophie's character in season or uh, series six. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, and then the final two things that he discussed in this um, this Q and A were about class. First of all, so Robert Webb, um, and I mentioned this earlier that he admitted that he gave himself an oral makeover and changed his accent. So the accent that he grew up with had um, like the short R sound. So he said bath and path and grass rather than bath and path and grass. Um, and he calculated it to have a southern english accent and said that was fucked up but he knew that to succeed where he wanted to succeed he needed to have a southern british accent and i wondered if accents mean as much in america as they do here or whether it surprised you to hear that robert webb was so so sure that his chances would be diminished if he had a northern accent um that's one thing that I've really enjoyed about doing this podcast with you is when you point out like the differences in the, the characters accents, um, because I don't hear it. Um, but I'm sure if I lived over there, you know, where my, my ear would be a little more finely tuned, just like I'm sure that you probably wouldn't be able to point out 
the differences between a northern accent and like an east coast accent um our accents are synonymous with class in america as they are here our our accents are more regional but the problem is is that um accents can lead to some um stereotyping kind of what you were saying where it's like if you have a really strong southern drawl it like people will think you're an idiot and like my uncle he has on my dad's side my uncle has the strongest southern accent you've ever heard but he is like a millionaire and you know but if you were talking to him on the phone you'd probably be like wow this guy is 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 stupid just because of his accent and mm you know whereas like the northern accent is a little more nasally and you know there's not kind of that negative connotation to it as... what do you have what what is your accent i don't have one you, you do have an american accent though so what what would you say someone an american who didn't know you would they think that you were from uh, i would say rather than i'd say midwest midwestern right. accent okay <laughs> I guess when you have an accent, you don't really hear it, but I'll never forget when, uh, for Christmas, I was up north with my family, and uh, we did this little thing where we dress up as, where the oldest cousin would always dress up as Santa and hand out gifts to, like, the younger cousins, and I really wanted to do it one year, and they told me I couldn't because my accent would give away who was under the Santa costume, and I was like, I don't have a fucking accent, like, fuck off, and they're like, yeah, but you you do have an accent, so... I remember having a similar conversation with my mum when I was a child. So um, Coronation Street is a popular, long-running soap opera in this country. In fact, I think it's the longest-running soap opera in the world. Um, and it is set in it's set near Manchester, so they've all got northern accents. And I remember we were watching it one night, and I said, so weird for them that they've got accents when we don't have an accent. And my mum was like, well, we do have an accent, but it's, it's a London accent. And I absolutely, I was probably about six or seven, and I just would not have it that I had an accent. I thought I had, like, I, I spoke in the standard way, <laughs> and anyone that wasn't speaking in that way was a, a deviation. So, so yeah, I, I get where you're coming from, thinking you don't have an accent. I also kind of got where Robert Webb was coming from, talking about modifying his accent, because I definitely do have a London accent, and an East London accent at that, which is not, it's not the accent you want. If you're going to have a London accent, you don't want like an estuary East London accent. Um, and I've never personally been told to tone it down, but uh, a friend of mine who was also a teacher was once told by an Ofsted inspector, so like an inspector for schools, that her accent was too estuary and <laughs> that she should tone it down because it wasn't, it wasn't proper for the kids to hear her speaking in this session. Never mind that they also all had history accents as well. Um, and I don't personally think that a northerner would be told not to be, not to, I mean, we've got in our department, we've got a Liverpudlian. I don't think he would be told to not be Liverpudlian. But people do think they can say things about your accent that seems entirely unreasonable. So I do understand why Robert Webb decided if he was going to go to Cambridge and he was going to have this trajectory of a career that he wanted he had to tone these northern accent down yeah that that surprised me in the book too because uh, again i don't really notice it and you know have a hard time telling it but when you look at someone um like my my first um exposure to hugh laurie was through the tv show house 
And when I actually saw an interview with him where he actually spoke with his, you know, natural accent, like, I couldn't believe how well he was able to just kind of turn that off and, you know, speak like an American, quote unquote. But yeah, that's, it's always really interesting to me when people, when actors especially are able to just kind of turn those accents off at the drop of a dime or, you know. I think Hugh Laurie's been in America too long now, though, because I saw him on something recently like a talk show in this country and his accent was a bit transatlantic and it was like oh Hugh what have you become but (laughs) I agree I can't really do accents at all so I'm always amazed when I hear people doing other accents and like you say just dropping in and out of other accents like it's it's amazing Uh, I I often think that for our listeners that sometimes like the differences in our voices just must be so jarring sometimes yeah I mean even I can hear that our voices sound so different from each other that it points out the difference is in, in your accent is just crazy and I find myself sometimes sounding so English and I think oh my god that was that you you must have thought that was put on because no one could sound that English and <laughs> uh, you know it's funny because my uncle that lives over there too even he's picked up a bit of a accent too and it's just it's interesting how that stuff kind of grows on you over time I definitely if I lived somewhere else I'm sure I'd pick up the accent because I'm really really um suggestible so if i spend a long time with someone with an accent i'll start saying things the way they say things so if i move to scotland i reckon i'd have a scottish accent within about three weeks (laughs) (laughs) the um the final thing that that robert we've discussed and that i just wanted to bring up before we close this podcast was about the the gayness and obviously robert webb talks about having bisexual stuff in his past before he married his wife um, Victoria Corrin Mitchell said, if someone had said 10 years ago that one of Mitchell and Webb wasn't entirely heterosexual, would people have thought it was you? And there was a massive laugh in the auditorium. And Robert Webb said, oh yeah, you forget, don't you? Everyone thought David was gay back then, which I think everyone did. I definitely, I thought he was gay before he married Victoria Corrin Mitchell because he didn't seem to have a public love life at all. It was never discussed in interviews and stuff. And I'd seen a profile of him in The Guardian where... It was it was insinuated. He was his housemate was his partner, I think. So yeah, I thought he was gay. But um, were you surprised by the uh, stories of his bisexuality in this book? Were you shocked by it? What was your reaction? Um, I wasn't really surprised by his bisexuality because, like I said, I always have kind of associated uh, Mitchell and Webb as their you know respective peep show characters. Um, so the fact that Jez kind of has a little bit of a fluid sexuality, um, it didn't really strike me that Robert Webb was in that, you know, was kind of similar with his sexuality. Um, um, Mitchell and Webb are always um, credited as being co-writers on Peep Show because they apparently added some of it or they added some of the stuff in the writer's room. Do you think that Jez's gayness came out of Robert Webb's past? Do you think that it was it was incorporated because... He'd had that past and everyone knew about it. It's possible. Um, yeah, I guess that's I guess that's probably possible that, you know, he wanted to incorporate that into his character. I honestly just kind of saw it more as a, you know, as a changing of the time. Like, because Jeremy's kind of that counterculture character. And I feel like that being bisexual would be that, you know, like, ooh, very trendy people are bisexual. So I yeah. want to be bisexual, too. But it's yeah. it's weird though because really um Joe is really the only man that we ever see him have any sort of relationship with and that's not till 
you know, almost the very end. Yeah, he sort of talks about things, doesn't he? And he talks about him and Peggy and Darcy, but there's never any insinuation there, any feelings attached to that relationship. Uh, whereas with Joe, he he thinks he loves Joe, doesn't he? Certainly when he first meets him or when he first starts sleeping with him. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. Joe is the only male that we've seen with, but he's kind of insinuated that he's got gay leanings throughout the show, isn't it? And Robert Webb said that, in fact, um, it was well trailed that Jez is a bit gay because someone, they were taking audience questions. They didn't take mine. But they were taking audience questions and someone said, asked a question about Jez's homosexuality, and I think it might have even been to do with, did it tie in with yours? And he said it was a bit left field that that came in in the last series and Robert Webb was indignant. I was like, no, it wasn't. We all knew Jeremy was a bit gay from the start, which <laughs> I agree with him. We, we did know he was a bit gay from the start. <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> I thought his relationship with Will when he was young was very touching, the way that he describes it as, you know, like after his mom died, you know, they were sleeping in the same bed together and Will was like holding his hand and everything and... You know, it, it almost makes me wonder if, like, maybe Will was having similar feelings towards Robert, but because of the time period that they were in, that, you know, that kind of stuff was frowned upon, so they just decided not to act on it. Yeah, I think he did mention in the Q&A that Will had, he had shown the book to Will, not his real name, before it was published to check that he was okay with it, and he was, and they're still in touch, and he, Will is also married to a woman. So, yeah, I think that there is, I agree with you, that the insinuation there is that he had similar feelings, but that, yeah, for whatever reason, whether it be the time they were living in or the, they, their youth, that it, it couldn't be acted upon. Yeah, um, and that's that's kind of sad because I, I thought that, you know, like I said, his relationship with Will, and it felt like that Will was a really... Um, will was a really strong um you know presence in keeping robert or you know in helping robert through the death of his mom mm. yeah definitely i think he was the one that it was his shoulder to cry on wasn't he yeah so um any final thoughts about the book i feel like we talked more about <laughs> what the book is about than the actual book itself but i think that's um, okay well, just 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 simply that it's an absolute must read. So if you haven't read it, that you really should. Um, have you got a quotation that you'd like to, to close on that? Uh, what was your favorite quotation from the book? Cause oh. I've got a few, but I'm just trying to decide on what was my favorite. Uh, go ahead, go ahead with yours. And um, I've got mine marked. I just need to find it real quick here. So I think for a non funny one, it was that one way of imagining life is that it's a competition between love and death. Death always wins, of course, but love is there to make its victory a hollow one. That is what love is for. Um, and he said this when he was talking about the death of his mother. And it I did bring a tear to my eye. Um, and he also said that for the year after she died, uh, when he was really, really struggling to get his head around the fact that she was gone, he said, I would dream of her all night and wake up to a punch in the face. The absence was more like a presence, about as small, harmless and unnoticeable as your average black hole. She was everywhere I looked, but she was also dead. Which is another bit that really made me cry um i this is the one that this is the one that i liked which was i called it when i was annotating my book i called it cascade of silver linings and it just says um um what if mom hadn't died what if i hadn't had to go back to school for a year 
what if I got ABC grades the first time and gone to Leeds? There were funny people at Leeds, but I wouldn't have met David, so no Mitchell and Webb, which means we wouldn't have been an off-the-shelf double act ready for Peep Show, which means I probably wouldn't have been casting Concrete Cow, which means no Abby, which means no Esme, and which means no Dory. That's a hell of a silver lining. For me to make sense of Mum's death, all I have to do is dispose of the best parts of my working life, unmeet Abigail, and essentially bump off my children. And, you know, I thought that that was, like, pretty powerful, too, you know, because sometimes, you know, you think about, like, oh, well, I was a big failure here, and I failed in life here, but then when you start looking at how your life went down the path, you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad after all. Mm, that bit that bit really resonated with me as well, and it made me think of, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, George Michael, but it really made, it made me think of the song Different Corner, which is, like, a sappy pop song. But the, so- but the song is about how he could have avoided all the pain of and suffering of the breakup if only he hadn't turned around the corner and, and met his lover that's that's left him. And But then the refrain of the song is that he did, and that's led him to where he is now. And I think that's very true in life, and that, you know, sometimes good things do come of bad things, and sometimes bad things come of good things, and there's not a lot you can do about it, but trying to make sense of it like that isn't necessarily helpful yeah i i'm just i'm glad that you told me about this book thank you so much for sending me a copy with his autograph i appreciate it so much you're very welcome i don't know if it's been published in america yet but i hope it has i hope it's out there no it's a yeah it's available over here it is available yeah yeah it has a great it has an excellent one star review on amazon Let me. Uh, oh, Americans! Yeah, here. Let me find it real quick because it's goddamn funny. I was looking for. I was actually looking for like a range of reviews for this book, but actually, I couldn't find anything but positive ones. So I'd be interested to hear what the one star review is. Okay, so one star review. Essentially, this book. Uh, it, the headline is a waste of time and money. Uh, essentially, this book consists of minus ramb- uh, mindless ramblings with no plot and no point. Apparently, Webb printed various snippets about feminism from the internet, jumbled them together, and arrived at a quote-unquote book. Furthermore, Webb's attempts to be funny are merely annoying. Don't waste your time and money on this drivel. Like, I mean, that could not be further from how I felt about this book. So that's pretty funny that someone's written that. Maybe it was one of the guys that was angry after his Channel 4 News interview. Well, I will I will say this. So I was curious because this dude's name is ArmyVet64. And I don't even give a fuck that I'm saying his name here because he's a fucking <laughs> idiot. But um, what he does is he goes on to uh, on Amazon and he finds any, um, like, quote-unquote, like, liberal... Um, thing and gives it a one star review. Oh, okay, so he's just like a trolling, yeah. rubbing prick, basically. Yeah. He calls authors bitter feminists, bedwetting liberals, and he defends the American Southeast, which is like Confederate flags. Like anything that does with the Confederacy, he gives like five stars, but anything that's about like real, actual, um, you know, stuff, he just says fuck it. Ugh, prick. Well. <laughs> Sorry, you didn't like it, old vet 64 whatever your name is. But I liked it a lot. So, yeah, if you haven't read it yet, then or if you're looking for something to buy someone for Christmas, I think this would be a perfect thing to, to go for. Uh, definitely worth your time. Yeah. Oh, man. And, yeah, it's a great book. 
seriously. It, it really is a, a great book and undoubtedly so much braver than many of us could have written. Many of us who've had far less bad things happen to us. So I think, you know, he should be commended for that alone, that he has has written something so brave. But I really think not only is it brave, not only is it funny, not only is it entertaining, but it's really important. And it, it properly, it got to me. It, it hit me right in the guts. And I'm really glad that he wrote this book. In fact, I'm grateful that he wrote this book because it's opened my eyes to a few things. And I think that it's he's he started a really important conversation amongst people that might not have had it. So yeah, well done, Robert Webb. Thank you for writing it. And if you've not read it, go and do so. Yeah, everybody that I've told about this book wants to read it, so I'm excited to. Uh, I'm excited. I'm glad that we finally got to talk about it. So. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right. Well, this is the L Dude Brothers signing off, and, eh, eh. and we'll see you in a couple days with Burgling. Bye. Bye.